Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. It's really a, a delight to be here. And I realize that if I move around, it makes it difficult for the cameramen to put me on film, which is probably a good thing because nowadays some Russians will hack me or something. And in fact, I've not only been banned from the Gordon Conference, apparently I've been banned from Facebook. So um, there's still nadirs to which I can aspire. But this is a, a real pleasure and delight. So I've followed Ali's work as I've have for many of the brilliant young people that passed through, through Sir Fraser's group. And a couple of years ago, we had a chance to overlap for an hour or so. C'était très agréable. Et on a causé tout le temps en français, parce qu'il est francophone, comme moi. And so we had a, a lot of fun chatting away in French. And the result of that is I'm here giving a lecture during dinner time. Go figure. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story about a molecule called texafrin, and we're going to focus on the gadolinium one. And I have to start by emphasizing that I'm a professor, which means I'm completely worthless. In the United States, professors don't do anything. It's a lovely job. And Texas climate matches Abu Dhabi climate, which means that having a job inside an air-conditioned building, not any heavy lifting, no road repairs, nothing. It's ideal. I haven't done a chemistry reaction since 1991, other than trying to make coffee. And I don't even get 100% yield of that. A lot of it ends up on my shoes. So all the great stuff, if it's great, that I present will be because of collaborators and coworkers. But the other thing I've discovered as a professor, please pay attention, is that nothing is impossible because I don't have to do it myself. All I do is ask a graduate student, oh, would you please be so kind? <laughs> and then it gets done. It's perfect. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you what some really smart people have done that has allowed me to get on an airplane to come all the way here to have fun with my friends and to meet new and make new friends. So Tahit Siddiq has been an intellectual driver. Rick Finch has helped with a lot of biology. But the main project I'll tell you was instigated by Jonathan Arambula, who still doesn't have a permanent position, and another permanent kind of postdoc, Gregory Theobald. We've collaborated a lot with Swarmy, Jung Sung Kim, Dong Ho Kim, and his student, Won Young, and Jung Soo Park, whose photo will appear later, have all been presenting. And we've been lucky enough that from time to time, people give us money. Okay, so now that we've done that, we're going to try and figure out how to go after solid tumors. And then at the end, there has to be some pretty obscure chemistry just to work up our dinner time appetite. So this story, oh, has everybody seen that I'm wearing a tie and a jacket? Yes? Okay, now I can take it off. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, <laughs> now we can relax. I'm going to loosen my button. And maybe I'll loosen my belt. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to tell you not about porphyrins. That's a porphyrin. I was working on porphyrins for my PhD. I got to Strasbourg and Professor Jean-Marie Lane said, oh, I had this former postdoc, Andy Hamilton, making a porphyrin cryptan. Please do that. Then I went to Tabushi's group. Please use porphyrins for electron transfer. Then I got to Texas. And I said, okay, I'll keep doing porphyrins. These are great molecules. There have been no fewer than four Nobel Prizes for this. The first one went to Vilstater. So Vilstater, I first encountered as a kid in Berkeley, California, as a hippie, because he was the, the first one to record a synthesis of cocaine. But he didn't win the Nobel Prize for that. <laughs> He won the Nobel Prize for elucidating the structure of protoporphyrin 9. And then, of course, Hans Fischer won the Nobel Prize for the total synthesis. And Kendrew Peruch won it for hemoglobin. So if you include electron transfer, then it goes on. Many, many examples. So I thought I could spend my whole career studying porphyrin. And then I got to Texas. And so this starts in a state of mind far away. And Texas is the largest state in the contiguous United States. It used to be a separate country. So it's known as the Lone Star State. Lone comes from the German word allein by itself. And after 10 years of being its own republic, Texas went bankrupt. And they sold themselves to the United States and gave up about half of their territory, some of which is New Mexico, Colorado, all the way up even into Montana. They gave up all that land and became much smaller. But it's still very big. And if you go to Texas, you will discover that everything is bigger. I didn't know that. But I found it out very quickly when I arrived in Texas. I started there in 1984. And there are probably people here in this room that weren't even born. So that's a long time ago. And in 1984, you were not allowed to start a job as a professor in Texas if you were not Texan. Unless you took a course on how to teach to Texans. And Texas in those days was rich, lots of oil money. So they paid me $1,000 to take a remedial class on how to teach to Texans for four days. And I said, okay, $1,000, I'll do that. So I would ask them questions. How do I explain inverse electron demand deals all the reactions to Texans? How is that different from California people where I grew up? And of course, they didn't know anything. So the whole thing quickly became an exercise on history and culture of Texas. And so I learned that in Texas, everything is bigger. Not necessarily better, but bigger. And you can see that. I've demonstrated this by slide. This is a Texas rabbit. It's bigger than normal rabbits. And the other thing you learn about Texas is that it has really terrible beer called Lone Star Beer, but it has a five points. This only has four points. So it quickly became apparent to me 
that if I wanted to survive in Texas, I needed not to make a porphyrin, but to make a texafrin. So what is a texafrin? A texafrin is a larger Texas-sized porphyrin. And this was an unabashed, devilishly clever, I might say, thinking that if you name a molecule after your state, then you have to get tenure. Okay, you're past that stage, but I could have given you this advice. <laughs> okay, so uh, that was the idea. And so this is the flag of Texas, and the idea was to chelate the flag with your molecule. And we published this. It was called Expanded Porphyrin. It was a 2.5-page paper in Jack's in 1988. And then I met Dirk Gouldy. That's a recent photo. We went skiing together a couple of years ago. But he was a young researcher, and he didn't get an academic job. He only got a technician's job early on doing pulse radiolysis at Notre Dame. So Notre Dame is a famous university with a, no, it's a famous football team with a university. We, we have one of those too. Uh, and they beat Stanford yesterday. Oh, so sad. Um, what's pulse radiolysis? It's basically a source of electrons from a Van de Graaff generator. So I don't know how it is here, but sometimes for us, we do have winter for a couple of days every year. Do you have that too? And then the humidity drops. And then you can take your clothing and you can get some sparks in your hair, right? So you, you rub. And we, when we were kids, we would rub balloons and then we'd put them up on the wall because you get static electricity. Van de Graaff generator is basically static electricity. You put it on a molecule and you can see what happens. You can also do electrochemistry. So electrochemistry is a way to put electrons in, take them out. And what Dirk did is he put an electron straight on the texafrin. That gets reoxidized by O2, which is oxygen. That generates something called superoxide, which is a reactive oxygen species. So reactive oxygen species will kill cells. And this goes back and forth. So on a technical level, you can do this by adding electrons in solution, watching them come back. You can put one in, then a second, go all the way, come back, take it out, take it out. And so this is reversible. What's that mean? Just like your clothing, that's reversible. You can change it and it can go both ways. And so that means that this is quite stable. It also means one electron's easier than the second. So what did we learn? We learned that texafrin can capture electron quite easily. This is about one volt easier than with a porphyrin. So it's really being bigger and be having carbon-nitrogen bonds much easier. At the same time, Tony Harriman was running our photophysics lab at the time. We don't no longer have that. But he measured the spectrum of lutetium texafrin. So we put lutetium in here. And what do we see? We see an absorbance way out here in the red that just matches the absorption from blood. And all this is very, very technical, but we can understand this um, blood, porphyrin, red. So I don't know if you've ever had cut your skin or something. 
and red stuff comes out or you have to give, give blood, it's red. It's not green. Grass is green. Blood is red. They're similar molecules, but the aromaticity is different. But if you like to go camping or you have electric power outlet or power outage, you can take your flashlight, right? Uh, and you put white light in and red light comes out because the porphyrin is absorbing all the blue and the green light and here's scatter. But um, so that, that's also interesting in terms of spectroscopy. But most of the absorption is due to the blue and green light being caught by the porphyrin. So what comes through is red or what bounces off is red. But this texafrin is green because it's absorbing red light. So the blue and the green goes through. And so it's just where your body is most transparent. So you can get light deep into your body by using red light. If you take your green light, it seems like pretty powerful laser, but you put it into your finger, it doesn't go through because it all got absorbed. So we can use red light. And based on this, we thought, okay, we have electrochemistry, we have spectroscopy, let's cure cancer. Seemed like the obvious next step, doesn't it? <laughs> and this came about in part because of my own personal history. You heard about that. And the second time I caught cancer, I was pawned off. First time I was treated by Henry S. Kaplan, who never won a Nobel Prize, but probably should have. Until he came along, cancer was universally fatal. He introduced radiation therapy, and that made a big difference. It's, I tr had all that. Um, I lost a lot of hair in the back of my head, and now I've gotten old and I've lost more head, hair. But that gave me three years. I'm so old that chemotherapy had not even been approved when I was first diagnosed for cancer. Think about cisplatinum off pat patents and things like that. Um, and I... That would not yet have been approved. The only one approved was nitrogen mustard. He kept giving this to me. I kept vomiting. So during the day, I do chemotherapy. And then sometimes at night, I'd feel well. I'd go do chemistry. And so that was my PhD. And then when we made this, I called up Richard. And I said, I think we have a pretty interesting molecule. And he goes, OK, I'm going to quit my job. And we'll start a company, which um, we have a word for that in Yiddish called chutzpah which means, um, and I guess if you know Spanish, you'd call this cajones. Um, so he, he had a lot of guts. Um, and the company he quit was IDEC, which was doing anti-idiotype antibodies, but he wanted to be top dog. So he ran the company for a while. And the idea we pitched to the venture capitalists at the time, that's the old logo, it has a new one now, is that we would use gadolidium texafrin for MRI and lutetium texafrin for photodynamic therapy, basically shining light. Uh, and so, do we have a periodic table here? Um, so, gadolidium and lutetium are way down on the bottom of the periodic table. I think I have one, but I'm not sure. Let's see if I brought my periodic table with me. Yeah, I, I have a periodic table. Can everybody see that? <laughs> okay. So there'll be a quiz later. But right down in the middle is gadolidium. 
Uh, and that's part of deep down in the periodic table, those nether regions that we don't talk about in polite company, but it exists. Lanthanides, actinides, these kinds of things. Okay, so gadolinium has seven unpaired electrons. Those of you who do chemistry, you've done NMR spectroscopy, know that if you have extra electrons, it perturbs your spectrum, the relaxation rates change, and so it can be used for MRI contrast. And you can see that, and we'll see others. Lutetium is way at the end. It's diamagnetic. It's a big metal. And so what does that mean? It means if you put light in, it goes up, but then it transfers to the so-called triplet state very quickly, and that can upconvert oxygen, as I'll show. So that was the original thinking. And so let's just review this photodynamic therapy, or PDT. And so it's a kind of next-generation treatment where you take a photosensitizer and light and oxygen and generate reactive forms of oxygen, which can then go and kill cancer. So here's a more schematic diagram. So if you start at a ground state of a photosensitizer, you excite it, you get electrons promoted to high level. These electrons are in what's called a singlet state. So what's that mean? It means they're paired up together. But if you have something big, they can rip it apart and they become separated. That's called a triplet state. There's something in nature called conservation of spin. So there are a number of things that are conserved in nature. Conservation of linear momentum. That's why we don't fall off our bicycles. Angular momentum, which is how a centrifuge works. Conservation of mass. Though after dinner, my mass may no longer be conserved. And conservation of spin, conservation of charge. So this is something that's conserved, but with a big metal with all its electrons, you can put it into this. And so then that will take normal triplet oxygen and convert it to singlet oxygen. So oxygen has a lot of oxidizing power, but it doesn't happen very quickly. So if you want to make a marshmallow roast or campfire, you always are lighting a match barbecue out on your porch. You have to light a match to activate your oxygen to make it into the active triplet state. So it will have the right spin to interact with an organic carbon bond, carbon-carbon bond, carbon-hydrogen bond. Well, you can get that same energy using a light and a photosensitizer. So basically, PDT is a fancy way of burning stuff. And it can trigger apoptosis. And we didn't invent this. Maybe Tom Doherty gets the big credit for popularizing it. But even the Egyptians knew that if you put certain things on your skin and you went out in the sun, you'd get a reaction. And if you had some skin disease, maybe it would kill it. So photodynamic therapy has been around most of human history. But Tom Doherty really turned it into clinical practice. His protege, Ravi Pandey's really taken over. Dave Dolphin got a porphyrin system that was approved. And for a few years, that was the leading treatment for macular degeneration. And, and his business partner, Julie Levy, and others have made contributions. So 
early work from Pharmacyclics, this company with Richard Miller, we found that the Texavarin localizes to plaque. And you can see that. You get an increase in the fluorescence. And then we came along with a little laser, red, red light, 730. And if you do that, this is a blockage. So this poor person has arterial disease, or I guess it's proliferal arterial disease. 30 days later, after one treatment, you can see a 50% increase. And this is a disease where you have a restricted blood flow. You open it up because it's laminar. Even a 50% is a huge difference. And so what happens is these patients start to feel better. Now, instead of walking in a cane or being a wheelchair, they start really walking. A little further exercise helps them. And so they feel better and they get better. So we were pretty excited about this. And it made it through phase two trials. But this was just 2001 or so. And that was the first tech wreck. And all the money dried up. And Pharmacyclics sort of ran out of money. And we stopped this project to focus on cancer. And cancer because Richard Miller was an oncologist, me because I was a cancer survivor. And over time, we focused more and more on the gadolidium, texavarin, abbreviated motexavarin gadolidium, because we were finding it had redox activity. So just that very early slide, how we can put an electron in, take it out, generate reactive oxygen species, we thought this could be used for metastatic brain cancer. <coughs> Unfortunately, something called Murphy's Law held. And Murphy's Law, we inherited this in the United States from our Irish Americans. And it's maybe the ultimate expression of pessimism. It says, if something bad can happen, it will. And... I heard a similar thing from Hungarians that today is worse than yesterday, but it's better than tomorrow. <laughs> so talk about optimistic statement. So what happened? Um, we got all the way through a phase three trial. The new drug application to the FDA was rejected in December of 2007. This was done in spite of the fact that 62 of 64 centers had very good results. If you took all 800 patients that were ever treated for non-small cell lung cancer over two phase two trials, the P was very good. Critical, the texafrin was found to be exceedingly safe, no grade three or four toxicities. And sadly, even today, there's no alternative treatment option. But there were two real study problems. One is that Two of these 64 centers waited two months to put patients on trial. And of course, cancer is growing exponentially. So when I was diagnosed, I got diagnosed uh, by my older brother, who's actually a quite famous medical doctor. He was a first-year medical student, and I was complaining I had this cold that just didn't go away, and I had some pain. And he said, well, it's not, probably nothing, but you should go get a chest X-ray. So finally, he kept pestering me. I said, oh, I'm busy. I want to have a date with a girl. I want to study organic chemistry, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he kept pestering me. 
And then I got a chest x-ray on Thursday, came back, not so good. Next day, I was getting biopsy. Tuesday, I was in Stanford Medical Center getting surgery and a week later starting radiation therapy. So we go very quickly in terms of medical care for cancer. And these two sites waited too long. And so they didn't get good results. And the others, the FDA had recommended we do 750 patients, but Richard wanted to save money and he only did 550. And I think if we had done 600, this would have been an approved drug. But at the time, all the FDA cared about was the p-value, which is a statistical marker. That's changed. As I said, there's still no good treatment option for brain cancer. My poor brother-in-law, more or less my age, just passed away from that a few months ago. And I still think the FDA would have been better off approving something that was okay as being better than nothing, which is that you will die. But they didn't ask me. Okay, so I knew I was in trouble because I was flying back, I guess, from France. And I got on one of these long-haul jets. And the stock was $20 a share. And when I got off the plane, it was $1.50 a share. And I'm going, this is not good. And um, he's going, I'm afraid, gentlemen, this doesn't call for a drink. But let's have one anyway. And in the U.S., we like something called the Simpsons. And Homer Simpson is going to alcohol, which is the cause of and solution to all life's problems. Okay, so what did we do? We had been watching Gilead, which was Peter Durbin's company. Gilead was founded on the idea of making triple helix DNA or helical modifiers for DNA, that failed. But he was smart enough to bring in J.C. Martin, who licensed a lot of Leota's compounds and some of the ones that Martin had made, and they repositioned themselves as an antiviral company. And of course, Gilead is a household name in biotechnology. So we knew that, and Durbin was actually on our SAB scientific advisory board for a few years. And so the minute we started our phase three trial, and we, in 2004, my former student at the company, Darren Magda, was charged for looking at backup portfolios. And so we licensed in two things from Craig Venter's company, Solera. So Venter, of course, was famous for DNA sequencing. He had raised a billion dollars and then he sort of went bankrupt. And so we bought a couple of portfolios that Darren discovered, Richard and the board approved, one of them. So the main one for $18 million that we bought was an HDAC inhibitor, histone deacetylase. And then for, it's like buying an NMR spectrometer. If you buy a 600 megahertz NMR, they'll give you a 400 one for pretty cheap. So they, for $2 million, we got a Burkitt tyrosine kinase or BTK inhibitor. It turns out that's the one that ended up doing well. $2 million, please keep that number in mind. It was approved by the FDA for its first indication, November or December of 2013. And um, May of 2015, Pharmacyclics was bought for $21 billion. And this drug is now being used to treat 40% of all le- leukemia patients. 
So that, that's pretty cool. And um, obviously the scientists, we don't make very much money, but it was not quite zero. And so I've been busy reinvesting the proceeds. You can see some nice cars, good whiskey. Um, famous guys have come, Fei Ho Wang. So bought this little lake house. So this is my dacha, if you know Russian. So dacha is like a summer home, which is different from dasha, which is a young girl. I did not buy a dasha. I bought a dacha. <laughs> please, please don't get me in trouble. Okay, so let's get serious. What, what do we really know uh, about this? Um, we know that texafrin, like porphyrins, localize really well to cancer. And because we have gadolinium, we can see it. So this is a poor girl, terminal pediatric brainstem glioma. If you're a medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, you can tell there's some problem. But if you're like me, a chemist, then you add the texafrin, you get a change in the relaxivity, so it lights up the cancer. And this has inspired the long and very far from complete struggle to bring texafrins back into clinical testing. And that's the story I'm going to tell you. So all this was just the introduction. Now we'll get to the real science. And why? Why am I so passionate about this? I think a lot of this is personal. And I think everybody in this audience has personal goals, professional goals. And my job as professor is not to tell my students their dreams, but to help them find their dreams and realize their dreams help them. So my dream is to bring a third compound into the hands of medical doctors. As a chemist, that's as far as we go. So if we can get it into clinical testing, we're done. And I remember from my story with Richard Miller. So we were saying you should do more patients, blah, blah, blah. And he told me, I'm not going to come to your lab and tell you what size round bottom flask. Why are you telling, telling me how to do medicine? So in the United States, we have two kinds of doctors. One are called PhDs. And in English, PH is pronounced F. So a PhD should be pronounced, if you want to spell it out, should be pronounced phony doctor or fake doctor. The other kind of doctor we have, and my brother is like this, is an MD, and that should be pronounced money doctor. <laughs> so if you can go from PhD to MD, you're done. So my goal is to try and get a third compound into the clinic before I run out of heartbeats. So that's, that's my dream. How are we going to do this? The basic idea is we're going to try and use Texavrin as a tumor localizing platform. So here you can see the little star of Texas. We'll put some cancer drug. This will go to cancer per those MRIs, and then we'll release that. And, and we're focusing mostly on platinum. Why platinum? I was lucky enough to team up with Sahid Siddiq. So he's originally from Pakistan, educated in England. He worked there um, in industry for carboplatinum. And then MD Anderson, our famous cancer center in Houston, bought him. So he's one of the most respected guys in platinum chemistry. There are three FDA-approved platinum drugs. As I said, I'm so old that this one was not, the oldest of them all was not yet approved when I was first diagnosed with cancer. 
50% of all patients getting chemotherapy get one of these three drugs and they're extremely toxic. They're very, very potent, but very toxic. So carboplatinum is less potent than cisplatinum, but it's also less toxic. So it's a little bit better drug. Oxaliplatinum overcomes some resistance mechanisms because of the diaminocyclohexyl, but it's pretty toxic. Texafrin, on the other hand, so here's a schematic. This is not so toxic. We know that from the clinical trials. We also know that it goes to cancer. So if we combine good localization, low toxicity with bad localization, but high toxicity, maybe we could get a good drug. And we're targeting ovarian cancer because we think that's just at the sweet spot where if we could bring twice as much platinum without killing the patient, then we could probably double the survival. So that's, that's what motivates us. Okay, so here's the bad girl. So we always have the, in the United States, if you read mystery novels, there's always the good cop and the bad cop. So the bad cop, if you watch Law and Order, is when he's beating them up. You better confess. And the good cop is, oh, please, won't you tell us so nicely? We'll be here, have a cigarette. Okay, and so this is our bad girl. If you give platinum to the bad girl, the girl's good. The platinum's bad. It goes everywhere. And some people think that only 1% to 5% of the platinum actually gets to the DNA, where it makes the kinks that Steve Lippard figured out, and that induces apoptosis. But what happens is cancer therapies fail due to dose-limiting toxicity because it goes all throughout the body. And platinum, of course, is highly electrophilic. Nucleophiles like thiols and enzymes will bind to it. That makes toxicity. If we could get more of it to come here, that would be good. The cancer cell itself stops taking it in. It's a nickel transporter and starts pumping more out as it will for all multi-drug resistance. There's a further problem is that the cisplatinum will make lead to P53 dysfunction. And that's actually one of the key things leading to apoptosis. So the whole point is to try and overcome some of these problems. We're going to focus on platinum four. Why platinum four? So platinum two, that's the current drugs. But platinum four has extra axial ligands. The four means it's missing four electrons formally. And this is only missing two. Because the platinum is missing so many electrons, it's holding on to these other guys, we call them ligands, really tightly. And if you're an organic chemist and you've done catalysis, you know that we're usually using low valent metals, palladium zero for your hydrogenation, for instance, because ligand exchange is faster. So what's all this? That's a lot of words. If you have something that's kind of neutral, it's not going to be caring, caring so much because it's happy. It's got all its electrons. Start to take more electrons away, it's going to try and pull, grab steel electrons from whoever it can. So the more electrons you've taken away, the more it's holding on to other things. That's bad for catalysis, but that's good here because it's holding on to all these guys tightly. 
So the platinum now goes through the body. But those other guys aren't coming off, so it's not going to bind to an enzyme quite so well. You're not going to have so much toxicity. But all that was known. But will texifrin give us a benefit? Well, we think it'll help target it, but we think it can do more. So the idea is that platinum-4, not very toxic, runs around the body, gets to cancer cell. Well, Warburg, way back in the 1950s, won a Nobel Prize for figuring out that rapidly proliferating cells, including cancer, are a reducing environment. They outstrip the oxygen supply. They start to build up electrons. And maybe that'll take the platinum-4, platinum-2, that can then go to the DNA, do the canonical Lippert kinks, and program cell that. But again, will texifrin help us? Will give us a special benefit here? And I think it will. So way back when he was at Formacyclics, Darren Magda, he's now working for Ken Raymond's company, Lumafor, he discovered, and this is why we thought texifrin might work, that reducing metabolites is like ascorbate would go to the texifrin. And maybe this would work for platinum. Oh, this is a typewriter. Has anybody ever seen one of these? Maybe in the movies? Okay. Again, you can tell from my age onset alopecia. I have a very fan. I'm spending all this money on new sports cars these days, but I'm saving money on shampoo. Kind of say. Okay, so you can tell I'm an old guy. But if you didn't know that, this would be further proof. I'm so old that I typed my PhD dissertation. What's a typewriter? It's a little machine, and you hit one of these, and this arm comes whap, and it has a little letter, and it sticks to the paper. And I typed my PhD. No computer. I didn't write my PhD. I had a really good undergraduate named Brent Iverson who wrote it. But I typed it. Even typing that was hard work. It took me two weeks. You make one mistake, start over. No backspace. So typing my PhD, this was a really big achievement, I thought. Then the big day comes. I put on my cravat, walk in, and I hear my boss, Jim Coleman, talking to another professor, Henry Talby. Okay, I'm nervous, but I, I heard Talby say, I think this is a pretty good PhD. I read the first 16 pages. Okay, I had spent, I never drank coffee before. I became a coffee addict during two weeks of type, 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 type. 260 pages typed by me. Professor Talby read 16 pages. Afterwards, Oh, he only asked one question. Well, maybe you can get the answer. Think of another carbon compound with the same oxidation state as CO2. That's the only question he asked. Fortunately, I got the answer. You can think about it. I got my PhD. Then I'm complaining to Coleman. Professor Talby only read 16 pages. Goes, did he sign it? And I go, yeah. He says, Keep it. It's going to be worth a lot of money. Okay, then I'm off to Strasbourg, and I can't remember if it was 82 or 83. It was either three months or 15 months after that, Henry Talby won the Nobel Prize. Now my attitude changed completely. Instead of having Talby only having read 
16 pages. Now I'm going, my PhD was signed by a Nobel Prize winner. The same facts. Experimental sections, exactly the same, but the introduction has changed completely. So why in the world did Talby win the Nobel Prize? It's something that's completely obvious now in retrospect, but not so in prospect. At the time, people were wondering why some electron transfer, how electrons go from one molecule to another, why some were really fast and some were really slow. And he won the Nobel Prize for inner sphere versus outer sphere electron transfer. So if you can take something negatively charged, bind it to positively charged, then electron transfer is very fast. But if you have to go from here to here where there's no room for them to dock, no parking place, then it's very slow. And so we get a benefit. We can park, we can put electron, but we started by showing from Dirk Gouley that this was a really stable system with an electron. So now we have lots of time to transfer to platinum. And so basically we have this platinum cocktail that enhances that. So how do we test this? We do something called MTT. So we have a little baby cell lab and we buy a couple of different cell lines and we use this thing called this tetrazoleum. So this is kind of the TLC plate of cell biology. This is accessible to the organic chemist. And again, we were talking about this, but this is something you can set up in your lab. If you have a living cell, it gets reduced, opens up, you have an extended pie system, it turns color. So if you kill all your cells with bleach or something, then no electrons, no color change, it stays clear. If all your cells are alive, then it's gonna be dark purple. So you add increasing concentrations of your compound you start with 100% cells alive, and you look to see what gives you about 50%. So you're looking about here. So the more you need, the less potent. In other words, if you can move the curve to your left, then you have a stronger, more cytotoxic agent. That's only the very beginning. It's, as I said, it's like thin layer chromatography for drug discovery, because Potency is only one of the many variables. Is it induced mutagenesis? Is it cleared? Is it toxic? So this is just the beginning. But if you don't have potency, then you can go home. So texafrin, MGD, that was not very good, which is maybe why it failed clinical trials. So if this had been more potent, we'd be having our institute lectures on my yacht in the Gulf instead of here, didn't happen. Platinum four, not so toxic, we know why. Hold on to these guys. But you put the two together, it's 10 times better. So this is our current lead system. We're calling it Oxalitex. It's based on Oxaliplatin four with axial ligands. So we just oxidized platinum two to platinum four. Now we can attach succinate amid. Why do we want to do that? Because we want to have the localization of the texaver and carry the platinum. And we want to know the pharmacokinetics and having one agent as opposed to mixture is just going to be better. And so this was started by Jonathan. This particular molecule was made by Gregory. And that's our lead.
So now we get to the good girl. So the hope is that by using the texifrin localization, we'll take it straight to the ovarian cancer or at least enhance its uptake there. Now, because we're using a porphyrin that goes through enhanced permeation retention, not a nickel transporter, any down-regulation down of nickel transporters, which make platinum less active, won't affect us. Things that pump drugs out, small molecules, maybe won't pump out the big molecule. And finally, because of use of diaminocyclohexyl, we think we can reactivate P53. So the hope is we can make a transformative difference in the survival for cancers, patients suffering from solid tumors. So this goes back to pharmacyclics. So again, ibrutinib, that drug that we've licensed in, I think it has not yet been improved as a frontline therapy. It's already being used for 40% of leukemia patients. I think within five years, it and similar kinds of compounds, covalent drugs, will take soft tumors like lymphoma I had, leukemias, and turn them into, if not complete cures, at least chronic illness. But solid tumors, some are responding to immuno-oncology. The way it responds, it's really remarkable, but only about 20%. We still have a huge problem with solid tumors. So things like lung cancer, ovarian cancer, brain cancer, liver cancer. These are real problems. And that's what we're hoping to go after by using this localization. Okay, let's get technical. There are three reasons we think this will work well. This is anecdotal evidence. It's an MRI showing some localization. The second thing is that we get this increased platinum uptake because we're not susceptible to resistance <laughs> mechanisms involving nickel transporter or other efflux. And from Sahid, Sahid, to pronounce it closer to what he'd like, um, you can get an A549 platinum sensitive wild type. And this is a patient-derived, just platinum-resistant tumor. So we, we started today with the third bar graph was over the same cell line that you guys are using. And if you look at platinum drugs, cisplatinum, carboplatinum, oxaliplatinum, maybe I have them backwards, um, cisplatinum, works really well for the wild type, not for the resistant. Really well for the wild type, not for the resistant. And ours with an error works the same. And finally, as I said, by using the diaminocyclohexyl, we get a different kink in DNA. Just like oxaliplatinum, we reactivate dormant P53, and cisplatinum doesn't do that. So this is only, this is something we knew we would get by using oxaliplatinum as our base. Okay, so now we're into doing animal studies. This is where it gets expensive. So... Um, I don't know how it is here, but doing an animal study, we start with mice and one mouse study costs the same or maybe even a little bit more than I pay my graduate students. So a graduate student, and if we're really successful, we'll go to a monkey study and a monkey study costs as much as what I'm paid as a professor. So you can figure out where I am, somewhere between a rat and a monkey. <laughs> um, it falls a, a full professor. Okay, so um, these are very expensive. 
we keep trying to get them right. First one was with a human lung cancer because it's a good um, subcutaneous model. That's probably not a great indicator of ultimate clinical success, but a good place to start. So if you look at tumor regrowth, uh, you don't get any inhibition with just vehicle. If you use carboplatinum uh, or oxaliplatinum, which is used for lung cancer, not very well because people die of lung cancer, you get some effect. We have a low, medium, and high dose. And again, we're getting statistically significant benefits. We talked about how um, we're worry about conservation of mass. And we have to do that if you're doing drug discovery. So the whole key is this therapeutic ratio between toxicity for a cancer versus toxicity for the whole animal. And how do we test that? We go, here, mouse, 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 here, mouse, mouse, mouse. We take a mouse, volunteer, and we squirt the drug into it, or the drug candidate. And the NIH ethical guidelines say that if it loses 15% of its weight, you have to humanely sacrifice the mouse, basically dispatch it. And of course, as we all having fun, maybe we're doing this experiment in reverse where we gain 15% of our weight, then we'll have to be dispatched. But anyway, the key point is um, we didn't see much change in body weight so no acute toxicity. So that's good. And this is a slide that has us most excited, maybe. So this is a patient-derived ovarian xenograph, PDX. So what is this? This is a cancer from a lady who passed away from ovarian cancer. It developed resistance, did not respond to the drugs. So ladies' ovaries, right? So really important. And now she donated her tissues to science through Champions Oncology. They have a database of these and they grew up mice xenografts, so they put it into a mouse. And now if you look and you treat that with carboplatinum, which is what that patient had, died because it didn't work, sure enough, it doesn't work. Just as bad as no treatment at all. And now if you add ours, um, stops growth, maybe even reduces it. And again, note acute toxicity. And so this is sort of Kaplan, this is called the Kaplan-Meier curve, where the Kaplan is the Henry S. Kaplan. What this is, each of these is where somebody comes off study or dies. And so by day 25, whether you treat it with carboplatinum, current standard of care, or nothing, all the mice are dead. And that's where the study officially ends, actually where the first group reaches that. And at that point, we still have, what, over 80% still alive. And we're just going to follow this until every mouse dies, either of cancer or old age. So we're pretty excited about this. Um, as I said, this is a resistant cancer no effective treatment, and we're really getting statistically huge difference. We've started to look at a colon cancer model. And again, we've done cell-derived xenografts and genetics. And here, N of three, patient-derived cancer. 
and we're still testing reproducibility. And in fact, just some brand new data. So probably we should mark this as confidential. We haven't published this yet, but it's a repeat study. So now we have N of 10 in each group. And so this is the vehicle. This is the current standard of care. And this is our lead compound. And again, statistical significance between these in a colon cancer, platinum resistant. And so again, this is pretty exciting. And we're always worrying about reproducibility. So um, the last thing I want is to get to this point where we get into the clinic and we get to phase three and because of study design or because we didn't do our homework, um, things fail. So we're really worried about reproducibility. And a little over a year ago, I was coming to this part of the world. I was invited to go give a lecture at KAUST and I stopped by Yale University because that's near New York City, as you probably know, uh, which, which is near NYU. NYU is <laughs> near Yale. I don't know. It depends how we look at it. And then there's a direct flight from there to Jeddah, so I could go, go to Kaust. And I overlapped with my old teacher, Dick Zare. So if you're a physical chemist, you probably know Dick Zare. He's 78 years old. He's still studying things like why bubbles and soap, bubbles and blah, um, all kinds of cool stuff. He did a lot of this comet assay with the cover of science, and then they had to retract it because it was all artifact. They thought they found chirality. They didn't. So he's a really funny guy. And I was explaining that I'm always talking about Murphy's Law. And from Kaust, I was going to China. And I was saying, I'm a little bit worried that in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf region, there are just not that many. We have lots of Irish Americans. We have St. Patrick's Day. You probably remember this. Um, but in Saudi Arabia, there are probably just not that many Irish Saudis. And when I go to China, there are probably just not that many Irish Chinese. It seems funny. We have lots of Irish Americans. It doesn't seem funny. So um, he said, well, let me help you explain Murphy's Law to people who don't have Irish culture. So this is Dick Zare's proof of Murphy's Law being reproducible. So I'll share it with you. So this is just a picture in Ireland. It's always rainy. And I once heard a joke about Irish people. Three Irishmen walked out of the pub. It could happen. <laughs> okay, if you drink too much in the pub, bad, as we said, cause of and solution to life problem, maybe you make a wrong turn and you drive into the pond. So what do you do? You get what we would call in the United States a tow truck. They would call a lorry to fish out the car. So that's looking good. But then Murphy's Law takes over. <laughs> but this is not reproducibility. <laughs> but, so then what do you do? You sit around, you scratch yourself. You get a bigger lorry or a bigger truck. It's like Jaws. You need a bigger boat. And so now that's okay. But now you have this problem. <laughs> okay. So that's Dick Zare's 
<laughs> okay, so we're, we're trying to extend this. We're using doxorubicin, Minhee did this. And we have to use a cleavable linkage. Chung Sung Kim has helped with this. And this one is working okay, not great. We do see statistical difference. But if you can see from the Kaplan-Meier curves, by the time we're off study here, we, we're getting 20% alive or something. So this is metastatic liver cancer, again, a universally fatal disease. So this is okay, but it's not as spectacular as the platinum. Okay, so what, what's the next step? We're just starting this company, and I have to put the disclaimer. Sessler or Ambulant, Karen Stranat, our business person, we have partially vested interest in this incipient company. And these are the things that we think we can do. And I've spent a year on this company. So far, I'm the only funding source. I've put in like the equivalent of one or two Teslas. And we're running around trying to find investors and venture capitalists. And we keep saying, please give us $20 million so we can get this into the clinic. And so far, remarkably, everybody said no. Except for one person who hasn't yet said no. So we'll see what happens. So we probably need about $9 million to start clinical trial. Once you start that, then that's an inflection point. And I think raising money will be easier, but we haven't gotten there. So if you know somebody who has an extra nine to $20 million, please. but this is not so terrible. Everybody says no, but it's kind of like marriage. I only need one person to say yes, and I'm happy. So we'll see what happens. Okay, so that's all I wanted to say about drug discovery. Um, I like this photo because it reflects the American diet. And the doc is going, who is the last person to see you alive? And this almost happened to me. So I'm 62 years old. You were very kind not to tell me, tell the audience how old and decrepit I am. But when I turned 60, I was complaining. Well, I've been complaining for a long time. So I can't really do too many sports. Um, I have too much scarring in my lungs from radiation, whole chest radiation, right? This is back in the stone age for cancer treatment. And I was telling my doc, turning 60, you have to do all kinds of things, tests. And he goes, he's from Syria originally. So a fellow, fellow. Syrian who's gone off to do wonderful things. And he was saying, well, you should get your heart checked. You should go to a cardiologist because if you have that kind of scarring in your heart, that can be a fatal thing. And if you wait, it could be terrible. So I, here's a prescription. In the United States, they, they scribble something to the doc. Nobody can read the writing. And, and then you call up to make an appointment. So I call up. The receptionist gets on the line. She says, who are you? And I go, well, I'm Jonathan Sessler. I'd like to make an appointment. When were you born? May 20th, 1956. Why do you need an appointment with a cardiologist? You're only 60 years old. You should be in good health. And I go, well, I had um, a Hotch two-time Hodgkin's survivor. I had whole chest radiation when I was 19 and 20. Dead silence. After a minute or two, she gets back on the line and goes, wow, you've had a good run of it. 
I'm surprised you're still alive. <laughs> Talk about bedside manner. Okay, I don't know how we're doing on time. Um, but if we have a little bit of time, we'll tell a couple of more stories. These are pure chemistry. So expanded porphyrins aren't limited to texafrins. That's been my baby. And as I said, the first paper was two and a half pages in Jack's. And sometimes I feel like my work has had no impact on the field at all. And if you feel that way, please come visit me. Because last year with Furuta and Gross, we wrote, co-edited a chem review. This is 1,200 pages. So 1988, there was two pages. Now there's 1,200 pages. So if you don't think there's been any impact, come visit and I'll drop it on your toe and then you'll feel the impact. Okay, so I just want to talk about some of these things. Feel free to, if you're not an organic chemist, then this maybe doesn't excite you so much. But we always talk about aromaticity and anti-aromaticity. And the idea is that this molecule distorts like cyclooctatetrine. If we could rigidify it, then it should be a real anti-aromatic. And we finally managed to make this. So Pradeep Panda, who's now an independent professor at Hyderabad, which is one of the better universities in India, he was a postdoc with Changi Li, made this. Once we had that, we could do porphyrin condensation, and we get a whopping 8% yield of this compound. And porphyrin chemists, we never get good yield. So the only way to keep from becoming completely depressed by these low yields is to introduce something called psychological yield. So if you're a porphyrin chemist, you use psychological yield, which means you take the yield and you multiply it by 10. And now you have 80% psychological yield, so you feel much better. But basically, we're isolating the impurity. Think about it. But it, look at this NH, inner NH, way down here. <coughs> Highly anti-aromatic. You can add two electrons, and now it jumps to here. So we've got like a 30 ppm shift. So if you don't believe in ring currents, now you do. And here's the crystal structure. All this was great. And Masatoshi Ishida, who was doing this, came one day and said, my compounds disappear. And I go, no, come on. Einstein and God can create and destroy matter, but mere mortals, we can't do that. It can't have disappeared. He goes, well, I don't have an NMR. And I realized these days we don't make pure compounds. We just make pure spectra. But he was a smart postdoc, and he went home to Japan for vacation. And he stopped by Fukuzumi's lab and did the EPR. And so what we figured out is the chemistry that made it disappear was just adding HCl. And it went from being diamagnetic, diamagnetic, you could do an NMR, to paramagnetic. And so what was happening is it was picking up a single electron and going from 4N, anti-aromatic, to 4N plus 1, which is kind of semi-aromatic. And this was kind of special, and it made a big splash when we did that. What's happening? So what's happening is you put, start putting electrons in. That's all great. But if you go back to the chemical structure and you look at this versus that, here, if you want to change the resonance structure, you have to move the proton. But here you don't. 
So if you've studied organic chemistry, you know that an enolate's a resonance structure. Whereas a keto enol, you had to move the proton. You pay a born Oppenheimer a tautomeric price. But by protonating it, it shifts the redox potential from minus 0.62 to plus 0.42. This is now so easy to steal an electron that we'll steal an electron from chloride anion. So sodium chloride, lots of it out in the Gulf. Nobody wants it. You have to desalinate. Chloride's stable. We don't even think about this. Except maybe Ali's group thinking about bromate. Oxida- higher sp- oxidation species. So I'll spill spaghetti on my shirt tonight. Then I'll have to clean it with perchlorate or chlorate bleach. So we know you can oxidize these things. But what's remarkable is that 4N is so unstable, it will steal an electron from a halide. Um, Pradeep Sarma has made some of the ones. I'll, I'll skip this, but I only wanted to point out that we're still publishing occasionally. And this one also goes from, uh, and again, it's the same sort of thing. We had, it's a proton coupled electron transfer, but now it goes a complete two electron with chloride. So this one's even easier to reduce than the original map, the rosary. And we, here's crystal structure of the triiodide complex. It's, you can see that. So that's kind of cool. Okay. So the last topic I want to inflict on you is bicyclic expanded porphyrins. So aromaticity has been one of the most important topics in chemistry. It goes back to Kekulé. 1865, he postulated the structure of benzene as being a hexagon. And you wonder where in the world he got the idea that benzene might be a, a hexagon. So that's moments before his brilliant discovery. So what's my dream? My dream is to go um, out of two dimensions into the third dimension. So Again, Andy Hamilton, Jonathan Sessler, many other people had the benefit of working for Jean-Marie Lane, and he became famous from Jean-Pierre Sauvage's Cryptan, which was published in Tetlet, en français d'ailleurs, just as the original catenane was published in Tetlet, en français d'ailleurs, in French. Three dimensions. It's been with me my whole life. That's great. You do it with a polyether, you get Krypton, you become famous. Maybe we could do the same thing with porphyrins, but the goal is not recognition. What happens if you have a ring of electrons? It can go that way. You make a second ring, maybe like that. It could go that way. But what happens if you have both? Who wins? Where does it go? Does it merge? And after a huge fight, started by Chandra Shekhar, Jungsu, great former student, finally figured out a reasonable synthesis. Even then, we had to use thiophenes because parole's harder to work with. We made these. Here's the control. Um, crystal structures. So the key point is that it's topographically non-planar. Because if it was planar, it'd just be two fused rings, kind of like naphthalene. And this guy is not completely perpendicular. Because if it were perpendicular, you'd have no orbital overlap. Okay, so now we go and look at the spectra. And basically... You see the small ring here, the big ring here, emission, big, big ring, small ring. Basically, these guys are not talking to each other. So years of synthesis, this is a failed experiment. 
So what do we do? We come up with a new name. We'll call this dual aromaticity. But just between us, it's a failed experiment. This did not work. But we have been thinking about rosarin. And remember, we can take electrons in and out. So we start oxidizing this. And what happens is you pull one electron out, it comes out of the lower energy 34 pi system. And now if you start to pull out the second electron, it comes out of that one. So now we've taken this, we've removed two electrons. It still shows spectroscopic properties consistent in excited state lifetimes, consistent with aromaticity. It's a ground state triplet, at least at very low temperature. And so the f- we've gone from a system that has 42 electrons, 4n plus 2, to 141, finally to something that has 40 pi electrons, 4n. So those of you who studied Huckel's law know that that should be formally anti-aromatic, but it's looking aromatic. And so here's some calculations. Basically, two pathways are mixing. You look at the Nix values and the nuclear independent chemical shift. All this is consistent with this thing being an aromatic system with 40 pi electrons. And so this is in accord with Baird's law, which is basically we know in synthetic chemistry as kind of the Woodward-Hoffman rules. So if you have something that's photoactivated, it's different than thermal. So thermally, we get deals older, four plus two. Photochemically, we get two plus two because we've changed the selection rules. And the photophysics guys know this is Baird's rule. And so this is kind of cool. It's the first time I think we see a 40 pi electron system that's showing um, anti-aromaticity or aromaticity. So we think these studies of aromaticity or anti-aromaticity are cool. And I'm kind of inspired by my physics and astrophysics colleagues. So you can see we have the same hairstyle. And he's trying to explain all this complicated stuff, like I'm trying to explain all this anti-aromaticity, aromaticity, number of electrons and blah, 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 and everybody's getting hungry. So this is what he explains to his students. Along with antimatter and dark matter, we've recently discovered the existence of doesn't matter, which appears to have no effect on the universe whatsoever. So maybe you feel that way about aromaticity. Uh, I I like it. It's a passion. We love these expanded porphyrins. And so that brings me kind of to the end of our Texas-inspired approach to chemistry. The main lesson to learn is that in Texas, everything is bigger. And you can see that by car wash. This is a car wash on Highway 71 between Austin and Houston. It's been repainted green these days. And it says car wash. If you come to Texas and you go to a car wash, you will not see a car. You might see a big old hanging pickup truck, dude. You might even see a cowboy washing a cow. But you won't see a car. That's too small. Everything has to be bigger. And I've been in Texas 34 years. I have never washed a cow in the car wash. 
but I have watched a dog. This is a true story. Once upon a time, I had a girlfriend. This is a true story. And the girlfriend had a dog. The dog was so cute. I, I think I was probably more in love with the dog than the girl, which might have been the problem. But we have a holiday called Thanksgiving. It's in late November. And her parents were living in Houston. So her parents invited girlfriend to come to Thanksgiving. Girlfriend invited the dog. Dog invited me. So we all get in the girlfriend's car to go to Houston. Okay, we're driving along. This is a cute, fluffy white dog. Smells like wonderful young lady shampoo. I was in love with this. But very small dog, very small bladder. We're driving along and had to go pee-pee. So November in Texas, it can rain. It had been raining. So we let the dog out to go. And it came back. It was no longer white and fluffy. It was brown and muddy and smelled like this because it had been out in the cow field. So it was my job to wash the dog in the car wash, which I did. And it turns out it's not as easy as it sounds because this is really high pressure. <laughs> if you take high pressure and you squirt the dog, the dog goes flying. <laughs> anyway, that, that's where we stand. I need to just thank everybody again. Um, so the most... Jung Soo Park, the great guy who's done so many things from uh, I talked about earlier today, made his three-dimensional systems. Um, Jung Soo Sheng is helping with that. Dung Ho does all the photo physics for us. And I mentioned these two guys for our new drug discovery work. Okay, so I think that's it. Um, thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.